Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for tuning in here with me today. It is, of course, Thursday, April the 2nd. Thanks for being here. I wanted to start by taking a bit of a look back at yesterday's press conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry. She had been asked several times about the use of masks by the general public. Would they be effective at slowing the spread of COVID-19? Well, traditionally, she has said, no, it really it won't protect you. And well, she didn't waver from that message yesterday, but she did provide a little bit more clarity in terms of possible benefits out there. Um, you know, if more people were to start wearing masks as they go about their day-to-day lives. So I'm going to start today's show by playing the response from Dr. Bonnie Henry when asked about the use of masks by the general population. So obviously this is something that we've been considering as well, um, knowing what's been going on around the world. I think the really important points are that, is the, as we all know, the supply of medical masks and respirators is tenuous and it needs to be reserved for our healthcare workers and for those who, who care for people with COVID-19 and other patients in hospitals. So that is paramount. Having said that, we know things like physical distancing and hand washing um, on a regular basis, not touching your face, uh, are proven measures that prevent the transmission of this infection. And we've been practicing our uh, physical distancing and it, it is making a difference. So we know those measures work. The use of non-medical masks, so things like homemade or cloth uh, masks by people who don't have any symptoms um, may reduce, in some cases, the touching of your face, although we do need to be careful with putting them on and taking them off and the importance of washing your hands or cleaning your hands when doing that. But we also know that they can have some benefit in keeping your droplets in. So they, they're not, um, we need to be a little bit careful, you know, they're not uh, a medical mask, but they can keep your droplets in when you're out and about with others. What is not proven is that they provide you any protection, and I think that's the really critical part. So if you're are going to wear them. It can help reduce the droplets that you shed into the environment and if somebody is infected and has mild symptoms or um, early on in the illness, it can prevent you from putting those droplets out and that's probably okay. Um, but it's not, it, it, you can't use it in isolation and think that it's going to protect you and that you no longer need to do things like cleaning your hands regularly or maintaining those physical distance. So in those contexts, um, I think it's, it's not something that's proven, but it is something that probably does no harm. So from that, basically how I understand it is, you know, using a mask, not really going to protect you, like she has stated many times before, but it does have the ability to help prevent the spread or slow it down in some way, shape or form. And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I think it is important to note too, that one of the reasons that there has been such a hesitance to promote the use of masks by people who are, you know, just going about their day-to-day lives is because 
These masks are needed by healthcare professionals, right? She said that off the top, Dr. Bonnie Henry, right? They need those N95s, those certified pieces of equipment that are proven to help in that medical setting. So like Henry said in the clip, there are ways to go about making one at home or, or finding some kind of alternative that isn't necessarily the mask that's needed by our doctors and nurses who are taking care of those who are infected with COVID-19. My mom actually told me last night that she's experimenting with how to go about doing just that. So if you're bored at home, you can log on to Pinterest or some craft site, find a way to make a mask that you can use uh, while you're going around, walking around. It might not help you, but it very well could help someone else. That's the message I got from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. I don't know if you interpreted it differently, but uh, that's the way that I understood what was said. All right, moving on. I do have a good show lined up here today. In the back half of the program, I'm going to be chatting with the president and CEO of the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. Of course, in times of crisis, it does have a big impact on the markets, which of course impacts financial institutions, which then in turn could impact the money that you have deposited in said institutions. So Peter Routledge will join me to talk about how well your money is protected, and that will be coming up just before the 50-minute mark of the show today. At around the 35-minute mark, I'll be chatting more about the $71 billion wage subsidy announced by the federal government yesterday. Finance Minister Bill Morneau says the government knows that taking action to protect a strong economy means taking action to protect Canadian jobs. He says this new $71 billion wage subsidy will ensure families have a decent income and that businesses are strong and ready to get back to work when we rise from this crisis. As an employer, you'll need to attest that you're doing everything you can to pay the remaining 25% of your workers' income. We know that this may not always be possible. The system will be flexible because what's most important is that Canadians can come back to work. My message to Canada's employers is this. Get ready to rehire people. So Morneau says this is the largest economic program in Canada's history. He says this will reduce costs of Canada's emergency response benefit, which was introduced last week, and that will reduce it to about $24 billion. So just how is all of this going to help you? How is this going to help me? Well, I will be joined uh, in a little bit by Alex Hemingway, who is a policy analyst with the Canadian Institute for Policy Alternatives, and we'll get a little bit more into the details of how the subsidy will work. So that will be coming up at around the 35-minute mark. And coming up next, I will be joined by the Education Minister here in B.C., Rob Flat. We will discuss what is going on with school right now. What is the plan moving forward? How do we keep kids motivated during the time when they're all cooped up at home and being told basically if they're on track to pass, well, they're going to pass. What's happening with capital projects? Well, we'll get into all of that next, so stay tuned. More Jeff Andrea Show is coming up next with Rob Fleming, so please stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for being with me here on April the 2nd. Of course, the school system is clearly being impacted by COVID-19. And joining me on the phone now is BC Education Minister Rob Fleming. Rob, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rob, like, how are things right now, just from an overall standpoint, when it comes to education across the province? I mean, clearly, crazy times here. You know, everyone's going home. I know teachers at SD73 are now being sent home to work for good. Uh, students obviously not coming into class. I mean, how, how trying has this been to kind of work through? I mean, a lot of chaos going on and, and still trying to maintain some semblance of an actual school system. Yeah, I mean, we are in this uh, bizarre situation where we are trying to create a brand new 
alternate system of delivering education in the province of BC, probably one that nobody would advise to do because there's no substitute for in-class instruction and we have you know billions of dollars of, of, of assets in, in, a, in a constellation of, of schools that are based in communities and uh, right around BC but it is where we, it, it, where we are where we are and uh, this is necessary to fight the pandemic and um, I have to say what we're seeing is teachers, support staff, administrators, uh, everybody who works in the school system stepping up to make sure that uh, we do this as well as we can and that we meaningfully engage kids. We don't know how long school will be disrupted for, but it could be some time now. And uh, and it's really important for every family, every child, that you know they continue to learn, and, and we want to offer a program that uh, will allow that in some form at, at an age-appropriate level, no matter what uh, grade level your child is in. What What is the message right now for both teachers and students? And the reason I'm saying this is because I know, you know, when basically it was announced that school wasn't going to be going back after spring break as normal, uh, I believe it was yourself who had kind of said, you know, if you're on track to pass, you're going to pass. And I know when I hear something like that, if I was in high school, that doesn't give me motivation to really do any work. And I know there's some teachers, right, really trying hard to present info to their students and, and still have some sort of a classroom setting when they are, you know, trying to do work at home. Um, you know, just what what is the motivation, I guess, for students? How do we kind of have that nice balance where teachers are still able to do their job and students are still actually learning, and yet, you know, maybe there is a bit of a lack of motivation now? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, most kids want to, intrinsically, they want to learn. Um, they enjoy learning. And um, we now have to deliver that differently. Uh, you know, just yesterday, we issued a province-wide license for interactive virtual classroom technology called the zoom many of your listeners will probably use it to interact with their families um that will be available shortly and you can conduct a classroom there's a virtual way to put your hand up and ask questions those sorts of things so teachers teachers can choose to use um, some of those things um in terms of you know what assessments or tests or grading or any of those things i mean look the teachers have a high degree of autonomy uh, and they're going to use their professional judgment to make sure that, uh, you know, what they're having students study for, uh, uh, you know, how, how it's made meaningful, how we get and motivate students to, to work. I, I know for students graduating, they, they still have another number of requirements they have to work on. Um, they're busy this time of year applying for colleges and universities. They should still do that. We're working with all the post-secondary institutions to make sure that uh, students who are normally given a conditional acceptance at this time of year based on the grades they've already earned uh, can continue to complete the things that will be required of them. Um, and and you, you mentioned the Zoom partnership that was just recently announced. Uh, maybe if you can get into a little more details around that. Uh, just I know it's uh, I've been using it myself to have you know meet up with uh, a lot of different friends over the course of a weekend, and you know you can have uh, yeah. depending on your your profile like up to like three hundred people on at a time. Not that any class is going to be that big, but you know <laughs> clearly some good opportunities to have a nice group session. So I mean, uh, just tell me a little bit about the partnership. Why it was so important to be able to have that that partnership in place so you could still. Have have you know a 20 30 person class if if you were able to get that many people to come in and focus and and you know is there any concern i guess when it comes to uh to the use of this technology sure sure yeah i mean i think one of the advantages of, of a technology like that and, and we're not forcing any district or teacher to use any in particular some are using the microsoft platform and, and there are others available uh, but we did want to license it for districts that don't have anything in place right now 
and uh, teachers anywhere in BC can use it. Uh, the, the advantage is, I mean, one of the things we have to do and one of the things that schools provide in, in normal times is, is, a, is, a, is a place to gather, a place to interact with one's peers. And kids are going to, you know, if they haven't started to uh, feel a bit um, stir-crazy yet uh, with this extended spring break and finally getting back to a routine in their lives, it's going to get harder as time goes on. And I think uh, being able to connect uh, with their with, with their fellow students, their friends from school, because they can't do it and be safe and physically distance, um, you know, under the advice of our provincial health officer, this, this is a pretty good tool uh, to be able to do that. And uh, I know uh, people have used it, uh, have found it easy to use. That's one of the reasons we, we sought the licenses, but also by getting a commercial license from Zoom, uh, we can make it safer. Uh, it has additional encryption. Uh, the server is in Canada, so in terms of, you know, sort of foreign uh, data gathering uh, concerns, uh, that's taken care of. Also, the students won't need a unique user ID. They just have to log on to a website for an individual um, class activity. So uh, in terms of, uh, again, privacy protections, uh, that is something that we explain to uh, BC's uh, information and uh, privacy protection officer and uh, is part of the licensing, which I think is which I think is good. This is about keeping kids safe at home in a pandemic, and it's also keeping them safe online. Yeah, and it's also keeping them connected, too, which I think is really key. Like I was saying exactly. off the top, right, I think, uh, you know, it could be hard for some kids to get motivated when you're sitting at home, but when you do get together with a, with a group of your friends and you are learning together, I think that really helps with that uh, aspect of things as well. Um, yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I also wanted to ask, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen. It doesn't look like we're going to be out of this sort of isolation period that we're in anytime soon. But there is still, you know, what are we in? Uh, we're in April. There's still, you know, a little over two months left of school. Is there any chance, I guess, that kids would, would go back to class? And that's probably more of a question for the health officer. But I guess if there was a yeah. chance they were to go back, uh, is there a plan in place to get things sorted out on a pretty rapid scale? We'd have to see. I, I think the school system, if, if that were deemed safe and, and directed by the provincial health officer, it's something that the school system could adapt to quite quickly. Um, I mean, I guess we have closer to three months of school uh, left yeah. when you take all of April, uh, May, and, and, and to the end of June. Um, I know students would love it if it was safe, too. The ones we, we talked about, grade 12s, to have a graduation ceremonies and all those sorts of things that are important. Um, so if it were, uh, you know, it will be based on safety. It will be based on where we are in fighting the pandemic. Um, and it will be based on, um, you know, what, what meaningful service we could do if we could restore it and get it up running quick enough in the school system. I believe we could, but, you know, this is, this is a hypothetical question, so we'll, we'll have to wait on, mm -hmm. on what the science and the medical advice tells us. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Rob. I just wanted to ask a little bit about capital work that's going on uh, throughout the education sector in BC. We here in Kamloops uh, have a couple of projects. I know the Valley View expansion being the big one that's sort of kind of already underway. Um, also waiting on an announcement in terms of a replacement for, for Parkrest, which burned down early, uh, kind of in late in the summer, early fall. Um, just what is the protocol right now when it comes to capital work? Like, will work start? Or, or are things continuing if they've already started? Do you know sort of what the plans are when it comes to capital projects? Yeah, projects that are underway should continue and are continuing. Um, you know, we're hearing in different parts of the province that things are slowing. Uh, there's less workers available in some cases. Uh, but, um, you know, that that's important to have that kind of continuity, and it's really important um, where we can continue uh, capital projects to, 
to keep uh, people working at them. Of course, the uh, construction industry is is guided by WorkSafe, and the provincial health officers brought in some specific instructions around how to keep worksites safe, uh, prevent the transmission of COVID-19. And, uh, and so job sites look a little bit different. Uh, but we're hearing everything from uh, projects being completely unaffected to uh, uh, slowing a bit and looking for a window to, to, to catch up. When we do get through the worst of this pandemic, when we can begin to uh, ease uh, social distancing uh, restrictions, I think you're going to see uh, the market respond uh, pretty strongly to uh, workers coming back and, uh, and and completing projects as fast as they can. Uh, has planning been significantly impacted? Like I said, I know we're waiting on a, a, park, a new Parkrest school, right, which is um, a, a thing that I think is going to be needed here in Kamloops, but obviously when we're yeah. dealing with a pandemic, stuff like that gets put on hold. So just curious kind of, you know, how, how has this impacted planning? Is this pushing stuff off already at this point, or is it too early to say? I can't speak to Parkrest uh, specifically. I, I just don't have an update on that, but I, I do know that there are some projects uh, both large and small, where um, there are concerns about going out to tender where there hasn't been anything awarded to a particular contractor, just to see what the market interest is like right now. But, um, you know, as I said, uh, in, in, in British, across British Columbia, most capital projects that are underway uh, at whatever stage they may be, pre-construction or, or construction, um, are continuing, and uh, districts are trying to see whether they can hold to original timelines, given that the market and construction practices have changed under the pandemic. Um, the need to be absolutely safe uh, does have a, a slowing tendency on, on work sites. Uh, but again, it depends on what, what stage uh, construction is at. And I think when it's you know the outdoor work versus uh, the finishing work, um, th- that tends to be less disrupted than, than, than sort of the final touches on projects. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, that's all I have for questions for you, Rob. Anything else that you want to add while I have you here? No, it just, uh, yeah, here, I would like to add, uh, I think uh, District 73 is doing a fantastic job. It's great to hear all the examples of uh, support staff and teachers working to distribute learning materials to kids in uh, in remote communities, rural communities, um, the old-fashioned way to hear their plans to distribute technology to kids that may not have that in their homes, and really supporting vulnerable kids who rely on the school system under normal circumstances uh, as part of their community, as part of how they get their nutrition. Uh, it's just great to see people stepping up, rising to the occasion, and, and Kamloops, I think, is a really good example, having come back from spring break earlier than most parts of bc of how you get things done and the leadership there has been excellent both the superintendent and the board chair and trustees so um i, I take my hat off to to Kamloops. They're, they're, they've really done an excellent job this is new to everybody unfamiliar terrain and uh you know they've just done a great job they've they've, they've been smart about how they do things well, thank you so much, Rob. I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. I think there's some good good information out there for, for parents, families, and teachers alike. So I really appreciate it. Yes, and uh, please direct people to go to Keep Learning uh, BC uh, for lots of learning activities for your kids. Good stuff, Rob. Thank you so much. That was Rob Fleming, Education Minister here in British Columbia. Coming up next, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the $71 billion wage subsidy announced by Finance Minister Bill Morneau yesterday. We'll be talking more about that after this, so please stick around. 
listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday. Thanks for listening to Radio NL. Finance Minister Bill Morneau says the federal government is doing its utmost to help Canadians get through a challenging time. He says the government's wage subsidy program for large and small businesses will cost about $71 billion, making that announcement yesterday. Here to talk a little bit more about that fund and how it's going to work is policy analyst and economist with the CCPA BC office, Alex Hemingway. Alex, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. All right, Alex. So, so this benefit, I mean, it will pay 75% of struggling companies' wages. Um, you know, up to $847 uh, is expected to last for three months. I don't know if that made sense. I didn't say it the best of ways. Can you break this down a little bit? How is this going to work? How do you understand how exactly this pay subsidy is going to work for small and medium-sized businesses? Yeah, well, how it works, uh, first of all, it actually, uh, and now it applies to businesses of all sizes, including large corporations, okay. small, medium, medium large uh, companies. And uh, the, the basic condition is if a company is seeing a drop in revenue of uh, 30% or more, they're going to qualify for this program. And as you were just describing, they're going to uh, get a subsidy from the federal government of 75% of their uh, wage uh, wage costs. So that's, you know, the purpose here is to uh, encourage companies to keep uh, people on the payroll. Uh, so you know, it's a it's a good idea in general. We need to support Canadians' incomes right now, uh, and keeping people tied uh, to their employer uh, uh, means that when we get on the other side of this pandemic, uh, they're going to have a job, and people in the economy are going to be able to bounce back. Uh, faster. So, so the general concept here is very good. Uh, there are some questions about uh, uh, the potential for, for abuse of uh, a program like this. It's incredibly expansive. This is uh, the biggest economic program in the history of Canada. Uh, it's going to clock in at a $71 billion uh, uh, cost. That's about three times as much as the emergency uh, unemployment benefits that are rolling out under COVID. This is all necessary and important, but uh, we also need to keep a close eye on it. Now, considering the numbers, you know, more than 2.1 million people have applied for EI in the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, I believe uh, some almost half a million of those applications have now been processed. But uh, part of this plan, when Morneau was talking, was basically saying, you know, if you have laid off employees, it might be a good idea to rehire them. So then you can go about paying out this 75 percent wage subsidy. Uh, do you think this is enough to encourage businesses to start bringing people back on who maybe they were looking to let go or have already let go? Do you think this will sort of reverse some of those trends? I, I think it, it, it's a massive incentive. Uh, uh, if you qualify, if, you, if you're experiencing that big drop in revenue, to have 75% of your payroll covered uh, it is going to make a difference. And, and they're sort of building that into their calculations in terms of they're expecting somewhat fewer folks to be on that emergency unemployment benefit uh, and be under this program uh, instead. I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, one big question here is uh, employers aren't being required to top up that remaining 25% uh, of their employees' pay. And, you know, one interesting feature here is that this is this program is going to cover, uh, you know, workers who are on, are on payroll. Now, that they may or may not be working. You know, a business may be shut down, and so they may be furloughed, but they're able to stay on payroll and, and maintain that relationship through this subsidy. But other people will be working. And so you do uh, – one concern that I have is – that if folks are continuing to work, do the work they were doing before, 
that uh, uh, we make sure that employers don't take this as a chance to actually reduce their wages to that 75% and that they are actually where at all possible topping up to, to, to the wages people had before to do that work. Yeah, I think that's got to be the concern, right, is businesses taking advantage of this subsidy that's really meant to help us through a crisis, but uh, some might look at it as an opportunity to, to save some coin more than anything else. And, and you had talked about it off the top there a little bit, just saying, you know, there is a possibility for some fraudulent activity to come as a result of this and people sort of abusing the system. Can you maybe take me through, like, kind of how you've looked at this and what the possibilities could be for, for businesses who might want to try and really take advantage of this? How might that work? Well, and, and, you know, it's important to say that the, the government has been using some strong language in the past couple of days saying that there will be serious consequences for anyone who abuses the system. And so that's that's good, but the, the problem is we need to have quite clear conditions set out in advance and, and more clarity on how that can be enforced. Well, you know, some of the conditions that we've suggested should be in place are uh, really strict limits on CEO pay, executive pay, bonuses, anything like that, restrictions on stock buybacks by corporations. Uh, the, the other one we just talked about a moment ago, uh, uh, requirements that uh, businesses top up those wages where at all possible. That's, that is being encouraged, but uh, we need to see some teeth on that. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, we need some transparency requirements in here uh, in terms of detailed information being published about who's, uh, which uh, companies are getting this benefit. Uh, they should be reporting in detail on their payrolls. Uh, and, and a requirement that uh, this not go to, to uh, for example, numbered companies or, or companies that are using uh, offshore tax havens. Um, Alex, one more question here, just in regards to, you know, the timing of this, you know, I believe it was about six weeks. They felt that this could really start flowing. I think there was some talk about as early as three weeks, but uh, we're talking about $71 billion. I think probably six weeks might be a little bit more realistic. Do you have, you know, when you see subsidies like this and bailouts kind of, uh, that have been put out by the federal government in the past is, is six weeks a reasonable time frame? Is that really quick? I mean, it feels like it could be quick when we're just talking about the sheer amount of dollars we're talking about and the number of companies that will likely be applying for this. Um, you know, just going back on any kind of prior experience or any prior um, plan that has been put out that might be not similar, but somewhat similar, I guess, to this $71 billion fund. Is that realistic? Is six weeks something that you can see as being achievable? Well, I think the, the, the problem is, you know, from an administrative perspective, it's, it, six weeks might be fast, but from the perspective in particular of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, nonprofits, and charities who are also uh, covered by this program, that six-week delay um, could be fatal. Uh, you know, uh, in the case of uh, uh, larger corporations, they're going to be able to uh, access credit more readily to bridge themselves over that six weeks. But you, you worry about uh, those smaller businesses. And so I, I'm hoping we're going to hear more in terms of bridge financing for small businesses, nonprofits to get through that six weeks when, when their revenue may have just been crushed. There is a loan program already in place uh, for small business nonprofits uh, of $40,000. That's going to help, but in many cases, that's not going to cut it. So that's uh, one other thing to watch out for. Good stuff, Alex. Well, thanks so much for coming on and doing this. Always love when you come on and, and take me through some of these new policies that are coming out, or in this case, new uh, new funds that are being uh, allocated to businesses to try to help get everyone through this whole COVID-19 situation. Uh, really appreciate your insight. And as we watch this thing start to flow out, maybe we'll have you back and, and we can analyze it a little bit further. 
Thanks a lot, Jeff. Awesome. That was Alex Hemingway, policy analyst and economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the BC office. Uh, so yeah, some good stuff there. I think it's... Um, you know, still a lot of unanswered questions with how this is necessarily going to roll out, but hopefully this does provide some incentive for businesses to hire employees back, put them on the payroll, and like Alex was saying, hopefully they'll top up those wages 25%. Uh, you know, on the grand scheme, it feels like uh, not a ton when, when the government's going to be paying 75%. Um, yeah, that sounds like a good deal to me if I'm a business owner, and hopefully how business owners, the actual business owners who make those decisions, feel the same way. Coming up. Is your saving account insured? Well, I'm going to be talking with the president and CEO of the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation next to talk about what's going on with your bank account. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks so much for being with me here on April the 2nd. While we go through this COVID crisis, many people, I am sure, are wondering about the safety of their deposits and guaranteed investment certificates at those big banks. Well, the Canada Deposit Insurance Company plays a role in making sure that your savings are covered. I am joined now by the president and CEO of the CDIC, Peter Routledge. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time. Jeff, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity. Yeah, so you were just saying there before we started that you had a bit of a public service announcement that you were uh, relaying to, to people out there who have some worries. So maybe let's just start with that. What exactly is your message right now to people who might be having a little yeah. bit of concerns about their savings? So CDOC is a federal uh, government institution, a crown corporation. We're here to protect Canadian deposits, the deposits of Canadians. Um, we are a uh, uh, full, full faith. Uh, we're backed up with full faith and credit uh, of the Canadian federal government. We insure about uh, the 100% of deposits for 98% of Canadians. So 98% of Canadians are fully covered in their bank deposits uh, if they uh, have their deposits at a federal institution in Canada. And we cover up to $100,000 of your bank deposits across seven categories. And no Canadian has ever lost a dollar insured by CDIC ever. And we've been around for 52 years. So uh, with that in mind, when saying no Canadian has ever lost a dollar in 52 years, I guess, what are some of the major events that you could maybe compare what we're going through now to, to you know, anything in history? Can you think of anything or are there any kind of examples of how, um, you know, scenarios have played out where the CDIC has been, uh, you know, or had a role to play in making sure Canadians aren't losing money? Is there a, you know, a financial crisis that we go back to in 08 or, you know, I'm trying to think of some other examples potentially of when Canadians might have been, you know, really hyper concerned about what's going on with their money. Well, we've never lived through a pandemic, uh, at least to, in, in my lifetime. So this is new ground for us. Uh, but financial instability is not new ground for the system. We've had periods of it. You mentioned 2008 and nine. Uh, none of our institutions uh, failed at that point. So we came through that quite well. If you want to go back to the last big wave of failures of deposit-taking institutions, it was in the late 80s to mid-90s. Uh, and we resolved upwards of 30 institutions. Uh, no one lost a, uh, a dollar of their insured deposits in any of those cases. And so we're, you know, this isn't uh, something that happens, uh, you know, periods of financial instability, thankfully, are rare. Uh, this may be one of those times, and we're ready to go. And I think what, you've, what we've seen over the last two months, uh, the response of our partners in the financial safety net agencies, uh, the Bank of Canada, the Canada Mortgage and Home Corp uh, Corporation, uh, Department of Finance, 
the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. There's huge uh, actions taken to stabilize the financial system, and what that is is resiliency. That, that should tell Canadians that the system is quite resilient and it can absorb this shock. And CDIC sort of comes in uh, if necessary, if one of our member institutions um, becomes non-viable and we're ready to pretty quickly, within a week, return to access uh, of those uh, uh, those Canadians to uh, return access to those Canadians uh, access to their deposits. Now, you, you said um, you know that the CDIC covers up to a hundred thousand dollars. How does that work if I have um, you know lots of money in several different accounts? Right, if I have a hundred k in five different places, so I have five hundred thousand dollars, but there's it's spread out between five places. Is, is all of that covered? Like, how does that work? So the way it works, it's. Uh, we cover $100,000 across seven different deposit categories. And each category gets 100000 of coverage. So if you just have a savings account, uh, up that, that account is covered up to $100,000. Uh, if you have a RRSP, that account is covered up to 100000 separately. If you have a TFSA, that, that account is covered up to 100000 separately. And the coverage is by institution. So if you have an RRSP with, say, 80000 with in, in a deposit or a guaranteed investment certificate with one bank and 80000 with another bank, that's okay. Both are covered. We cover 100000 per institution per category. And, so, and that's why we cover so many Canadians in full because they do take advantage of the different categories and, and with their advisors place their money accordingly. Just in terms of the different categories, though, so seven different categories, and you can basically have, um, you know, set spread out through different institutions and then different types of, of funds, whether it be a savings or a TFSA or an RSP, right? You can kind of spread your money out to make sure it's all covered in, in some way, shape, or form. So I guess for, for people who do have a ton of money, like as long as you've pretty much placed it in the right spots, then you should be confident in your coverage is sort of the, the message I'm getting here. Yeah, you should be completely confident. And, and what, what we're going through might, you know, if you're listening to the radio, maybe oh, wait, I didn't catch that bit. If you go to our website, cdic.ca, and you, you click into what we cover, uh, which is right on the front page, uh, it'll take you through in detail all the coverage parameters. Um, but you're right. Uh, most folks uh, who do have a savings that breach our, our $100,000 mark can choose to invest in bank deposits. Those folks have a pretty good sense of, uh, what's covered, and how we apply uh, the rules to that coverage. And uh, when they're confused, uh, they can either pop onto our website, or uh, you know, you can also. Uh, we also have a call line. You can you can call in. How does it work for like invested money? Like if I have a TFSA that I have invested into some mutual funds, like is that covered, or how does that work? No. So CDIC doesn't cover mutual funds, bond holdings, stocks, other capital instruments. What we cover is bank deposits. We cover bank deposits at federal institutions, so institutions that have a federal bank charter. And there's 86 of those, and those are also available, a list of those are also available at our website, cdic.ca. If you're wondering, is my institution covered by CDIC? Uh, If they are, on their front page of their branch door, on their website, they have to uh, display our logo, which is a purple lock with a Canadian flag in the middle. Can't miss it. 
Also wondering, too, when it comes to credit unions, you know, if I have funds in a credit union and I have concerns about them closing and, and you know, just con- is there concern out there or, or if people are concerned about, about such things, you know, is how are they covered when it comes to something like a credit union where they are worried about it actually going out of business, right? You're probably not worried about one of the big banks closing if I have money in there, but maybe if I'm in a smaller institution, I might have a little more concerns about them closing up shop. So credit unions are typically, but not always, but typically... Uh, regulated provincially, and all uh, provincial, all provinces have their own uh, deposit insurance corporations. Um, in uh, BC, for example, uh, it's called the BC Financial Services Authority or BCFSA, and they provide deposit insurance coverage for British Columbians and who bank with uh, credit unions. So, uh, you guys are basically more so dealing with the the big five banks here in here in Canada then. Uh, well, there's uh, certainly five very large banks in Canada, and we and those are all uh, have deposits insured by CDAC, and then another 81 institutions um, beyond those five that we also uh, insure. Awesome. Well, uh, that's about it. I guess uh, one thing I did want to ask if, if you know, if there was um, someone out there who uh, had some money in somewhere that did close up that was covered by CDIC and they, they said they had been, uh, you know, sort of drawing away from their savings and they're, now they're worried about, you know, where their next bit of money is going to come from. How do they get their money back? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd, I'd say to that is um, if, if you are worried about that, I just want to reassure you, we have a, pardon me, really stable, resilient financial system and on the horizon, such as it is, I'm not concerned about that. Things change, and we don't know how this pandemic is going to evolve, but I do want to stress that up front. Uh, if, if things do deteriorate from here in the financial system and a member does become non-viable, um, we uh, will know about it early or earlier than, um, uh, early enough to start to get prepared uh, to pay off uh, Canadians uh, or provide and return access uh, of Canadians to their deposits. So that individual, uh, we, when an institution becomes non-viable, we go into the institution, look at their books and records, figure out uh, who's covered and up to what amount, and we reach out to them. And could be, you know, if it's email, if it's on the books and records of the bank, we'll find you that way. If they have your name and address and telephone number, we can find you that way. We'll do anything we can to find you. And if you're worried, before we have a chance to reach out to you, you can reach us and we'll be prepared to take in your information and tell you, here's what we have on the books and records of the institution and here's how much we're prepared to pay you. Uh, Let's confirm your address and away we go. Peter, uh, I guess I'll get you out of here on this. Um, You know, just curious, as we've gone through sort of a a little bit of a history look here, have there ever been circumstances where the CDIC has has had to pay out and and sort of what led to to those payouts having to be made? Can you kind of give me some examples of of when things might have gone awry and, you know, CDIC was there to help people? So it hasn't happened since 1996. And again, that gets to the resiliency of the Canadian financial system. But before 1996, going back to uh, our inception, 1967, there were 43 failures of members Every member failure is different. Yeah, they're like snowflakes. But basically, the uh, regulator, the superintendent of financial institutions, which regulates quite tightly all federal deposit taking uh, uh, deposit takers, calls us up and says, "Hey, you know, uh, we're worried about this institution, so we start to get ready. If it's deemed the institution is non-viable, mean, meaning uh, not enough capital to meet its uh, obligations as they come due." 
we snap into action and prepare for resolving the institution. Resolving the institution can mean uh, many things. It could mean, for example, finding another buyer to buy the institution up and take over the deposits. Um, and you, you saw that a lot in the United States during the great financial crisis. Or it could mean the payout. Um, payouts are not... Uh, uh, they're not the most frequent resolution of a member institution. Uh, we'll always try and find a way to keep the branches open and the institution functioning under different ownership if we can. Uh, and if we can't, then we will do a payout. And that usually takes, uh, we'll get probably within seven days, we'll get about 80% of folks paid off, we think. And then depending on the data uh, and the quality of the data, it takes a little longer for the rest. But um, we practice a lot. We use... Um, uh, our member data in simulations to get ready for just that. Um, we know how many checks we can write per hour and um, if need be. And so we're, we're prepared to jump into action if, if the last resort, which, it, which, is, which would be a payout, uh, is necessary. Well, hopefully we don't get there, Peter. Anything else you want to add? I don't think we you? will. Yeah, I just uh, say to Canadians that this is unsettling. We haven't been through a, a pandemic before not of this magnitude. Um, the financial system is very resilient. And I think what you're, what we're going to find out through this is that resilience that we've built up, particularly since the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, will serve us really well. And we'll get through this and uh, we'll come out the other side feeling comfortable and confident that we have a resilient financial system that can deal with it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Peter. Really do appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we've uh, calmed some concerns of anyone out there who maybe was, was a little bit worried. So thank you so much. All right. And cdic.ca if anyone has any questions. That was Peter Rowledge, President and CEO of the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation. So if you're worried about what's in the bank, hopefully that uh, calms some concern out there. And if you're overly worried, we'll maybe head on to CDIC and double-check to make sure that your savings and your livelihood are covered. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow on Friday at 9.